Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the founder of Sub Pop Records, Bruce Pavitt. Bruce, how are things? Doing well, my friend, considering the world's uh, up in flames right now. I'm kicking back in my lounge chair and uh, experiencing a nice summer breeze here on Orchid Island. We'll get to current issues later, but I want to take you way back right now. Growing up in the Chicago area, did you feel like it was easier to find the kinds of music and art that you were after? Or was it still a struggle back then to really find what you were looking for? So I'll give you a snapshot here. Uh, I was born in 59, started collecting records uh, at an early age. But in my teens, I became aware of, of kind of the new wave punk culture that was uh, developing. And thankfully... Uh, my father would uh, would read the New York Times, which was a little unusual for somebody living in the suburbs, as the New York Times had to get shipped to Chicago, and the, the daily paper I read was uh, a, a, a day old. Uh, I mention this because I was able to read about groups like television and talking heads and what was going on uh, at CBGB's, for example, uh, a little ahead of the curve. Thankfully, uh, the Wax Trax record store opened up in Chicago in 78, and I would take the train into Chicago and and, uh, and peruse the, the records there, uh, possibly one of the best record stores in America at that time. So I did have access to a lot of the early punk new wave stuff via media and also just being able to go to Wax Trax. What did you think of that uh, new Wax Tracks documentary that just came out? You know, I, I thought it was really well done. I'm familiar with all those all those <laughs> players, all those musicians. And uh, most people know Wax Tracks through the label. They kind of helped pioneer the whole industrial sound uh, with groups like Ministry and so forth. But I will say that that record store in Lincoln Avenue in the late 70s, early 80s was a, a game changer for for people in the Midwest. Well, did you ever think that you would play in a band or mix records? Or was the experience of selling your old records at school kind of eye-opening for you and something you could tell that you could be successful at and maybe a record company would just be the best fit for the music industry and how you would sneak your way into the music industry? Well, uh, as you might know, my uh, I was really a record, record buyer, a, rec- a super fan, as it were. And because the zine culture... I was growing out of punk, punk, punk rock, out of the punk rock scene. I was really inspired to do my own zine in 79 once I moved out to Olympia and did my subterranean pop radio show. So my interest was really in uh, sharing information about rare and obscure regional uh, records. And that's what I did with my zine and my column. And one thing led to another released cassette compilations of demos from around the country and that morphed into a record label. So the whole project grew organically out of a a passion for record collecting and sharing information with other collectors. I know how you were getting like the New York stuff through the New York Times. How were you noticing the Ohio bands in the Ohio scene, bands like Devo? How were you getting that information up in Chicago? Interesting, you should mention that because a huge influence on, on me was a, a, a fanzine magazine that came out of Cleveland called Clee Magazine. And it was covering Per Ubu and uh, Devo and, and all these different bands that were coming out of Ohio. 
And I remember in the index, they listed over, I totally remember this, they listed over 30 bands that were coming up with the original material were just out of the uh, state of Ohio. And that really, really blew my mind. I picked up that zine at Wax Tracks. I bought my Devo singles at Wax Tracks. So that was really, that was really the key, was being able to go to that record store and kind of awaken to the fact that some people in America were, and Europe and so forth were taking control over their own culture, releasing their own zines, releasing their own records, and I thought that was incredibly exciting. What were some of the first bands that you heard coming from the Pacific Northwest before you even moved out there? Zero. That's the whole thing. You know, back in 79, <laughs> 80, uh, pe- people were, were not aware. There was no communic. There was very, very little communication between these different regional scenes, which is exactly why I started uh, the subterranean pop slash sub pop fanzine. I knew there was all sorts of records coming out of Chicago, like out of the Art Institute, groups like Immune System and the Dodistics and so forth. And then when I moved to Olympia in 79, I realized there were groups like the Blackouts and the Beakers in Seattle. And these two scenes, there was literally no communication. Uh, nobody in Seattle knew what was going on in Chicago. Nobody in Chicago knew what was going on in Seattle, which is, again, the primary reason I started that zine was to start networking regional scenes. What did you think of the Seattle scene when you first moved there? Or I, I should say the Pacific Northwest scene, because it was more than just Seattle. It, it was indeed. Uh, certainly Portland and Vancouver. I was blown away. First of all, I had the good fortune of, of being able to plug into Chaos Radio, which was a community radio station based on the, at the campus of Evergreen State College in Olympia, which had an independent music policy, which stated 80% of the records had played had to be indie records. So it was one of the most progressive stations in the country. Uh, that was huge. In Seattle, there was an art gallery called Roscoe Louis Art Gallery that, that uh, had all sorts of performance artists and musicians play. And you have to realize back in 79, 80, 81, the scene really, what was so fascinating about it was that you had musicians, oftentimes there were also painters, designers, et cetera. And so it was just a high concentration of very creative people doing music, but also doing all sorts of other things. Uh, there was there was a rich, vibrant scene in Seattle, as well as Portland, as well as Vancouver. Was there a reason that you chose Olympia as opposed to somewhere like UW? Yes. Well, the Evergreen State College was one of the few state-sponsored uh, alternative schools in the country. Uh, I believe there was just a couple others. I had gone to an alternative high school, one that emphasized independent studies, for example, didn't have grades, was very uh, free-thinking. And so I, I really wanted to go to a college like that, and so that's what led me to Evergreen. It was affordable, classes were small, and they gave me a lot of freedom. What did you learn most from your time at Chaos in Olympia? Uh, I would say the... Well, I met a a very creative group of people who were all kind of working out of chaos. Ethos, the producer, Kelvin Johnson, who went on with Beat Happening in the K record label. Uh, John Foster started Op Magazine, which morphed into Option. So what I really learned through through chaos and my time at Evergreen was I, I learned 
the, the all the details of the indie records that were coming out of America because they were all in the the uh, the library at Chaos. Furthermore, the uh, the zine op that came out of Chaos was documenting and reviewing a lot of these records. So I that was my real schooling at Evergreen was learning all the nitty gritty details about the small indies from around the country. When you got that first check from the fanzine, really from a huge gamble, did you ever think that your career might take the path towards rock journalism? Or was the goal really always to start getting out some releases with the zine? The goal was really to to keep the zine going. Uh, I enjoyed getting a lot of free records. Once I established the zine, bands from all over the country were sending me records, and that was kind of the payoff. And I'd always make just enough money from my subscriptions and sales to to put out another issue. You have to realize I was getting college credit at Evergreen for for doing this. So everything uh, just really evolved in a in a very humble way that uh, that was very satisfying. When was the first time that you saw Charles Peterson's work, and how much direction did you give him when it came to shooting shows? Great, great, great question. I moved to Seattle in, in 1983, and Mark Arm, the, who went on to become the singer of Mud Honey, mm-hmm. introduced me to Charles Peterson. Uh, so I, I knew who he was. I knew he was a photographer, but I believe it was in the spring of 86, I was at a, a party at what was known as the Room 9 house. There was a group called Room 9. They had a house in the U District right next to uh, the Rainbow Tavern where a lot of bands played. And he had these, I, I believe they were almost three foot by four foot prints hanging up in the living room of this house. He had access to very inexpensive printing through the U-Dub. And as soon as I saw his work in that context, that was total game changer for me. Uh, because I realized that he was really onto something. And if I could marry these images with the sound that was coming out of Seattle, we would really have something. So it was a momentous moment when I, I saw those images. And I, I've never really given him any instruction. I just fell in love with his work. And I think he is the pivotal, pivotal uh, and iconic Seattle artist from the 90s. And his work just is continuously uh, appreciated globally for for what it is. I don't think that you get enough credit for just how much you had a vision of shaping a scene, especially when it came to going across the pond. Did you have this vision before John Peel started writing about you guys? Or did it kind of push you forward after you saw what John Peel was writing about Sub Pop 200? Well, uh, I'll tell you an anecdote. I, in 87, I went to Amsterdam, and I made a little bit of cash off of the very first Sub Pop record, which was called Sub Pop 100. It was a collection of demos from around the country. It's kind of like the tapes I was putting out. This was before the focus on Seattle. So I'm in Europe, I'm in Amsterdam, and I remember seeing this huge billboard for the movie Rocky with Sylvester Stallone, okay? And it sounds a little silly, but at that moment, I realized, wow, America's most powerful export really is its culture. It's the films, it's the music, and 
it, I instinctively understood that people in Europe would get excited about what we're doing uh, in America, in Seattle, if I could just kind of frame it right, because the world is and continues to be fascinated with American culture. Well, did you ever get to thank John Peel for writing those reviews on the Sub Pop 200? Uh, not, not in person, not in person. Uh, but I did, uh, we did, we did write him and we would thank him in interviews and so forth. And that was a huge, huge break to get John Peel uh, playing Sub Pop 200, playing the Mud Honey record. And then also reviewing Sub Pop 200 in the London Observer and uh, stating that Seattle had the most, Sub Pop had the most distinctive regional sound since Tamla Motown. That was the highest endorsement we could have expected. So it was a huge break. And once that happened, uh, the European uh, press and industry started, started getting behind us. Do you think one of your best decisions ever was getting that Sub Pop logo? Once Nirvana had moved on to the to the major labels, still having that sub pop logo on the back of those albums, uh, that was that was a great coup for sure. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, we loved Mr. Poneman, John Poneman, my business partner, and I. Uh, really, <laughs> we loved having that logo, and it got it got reprinted. It, it just got referenced a lot, uh, and we we always tried to make the extra effort to get our name in the press or our logo out there through t-shirts and so forth. We're very, very brand conscious and certainly getting the sub pop logo on the back of smells like teen spirit and nevermind was, was a huge coup. Did you really just have disagreements with, on, with, with, with Pondman on the label's future or were there other reasons that saw your departure in 1996? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, well, I could just rip on this for a bit, but simply as the company grew, it became more departmentalized. In many ways, it became more professional, which from a corporate perspective is great. But I realized that what was really fueling me as a personality type was the creativity, the spontaneity, the, the intuitive process of kind of making stuff up as you go along. That's really... How I'm wired, and so as the company grew and became more organized, more professional, and more more power to them, it just it it just became more dissonant with myself. And it's hard to keep a business small. There is a perpetual push for growth, and it just came to a point where uh, I I just wasn't relating to to the biz. And Jonathan, more power to him. He and Megan have kept the label alive, kept it going. I have tremendous respect for that. But uh, it's time for me to check out. I, I moved to Orcas Island, raised a couple of beautiful kids, and can't really complain. What were some of your favorite venues back back in the early Seattle days? Uh, there were there were some great venues. I loved uh, the Vogue nightclub. It was downtown. It was very intimate. Um, they were known as, as kind of a, a, a dance club, kind of a rock dance club. But they would do, uh, bands would play there. Again, very intimate. That was one of my favorite spots. Uh, uh, the Central Tavern, which had been around since the 1890s, is still around. 
was another uh, intimate venue that was a little bigger. Uh, the Rainbow Tavern, which I believe no longer exists, was a, another venue. All of these places were very unpretentious. They're very intimate. And again, for me, one of the things that drew me into the punk rock culture and what was going on in Seattle was just the intimacy of the shows. You know, seeing bands, uh, I remember seeing Devo with uh, 150 people in the audience. I remember seeing Talking Heads with maybe four or 500 people in the audience. And I, I was always drawn towards shows uh, that were intimate or you could really connect with, with the artist. So once a lot of the Seattle bands started playing arenas, uh, I, I, I just stopped going to those shows. They really, those, that, that kind of arena environment doesn't really do it for me. What would you say that the biggest changes you've seen throughout the entire Pacific Northwest have been over the years? Well, I think fundamentally, uh, I'd have to talk about Seattle. Seattle definitely become gone from more of a working class town to a, a tech, tech slash professional town. And that's uh, driven up rent. It's driven up home costs. So a lot of creative people who don't really want to work for 40 hours a week and then being a band got, got squeezed out. A lot of those folks moved down to Portland, actually, uh, which is going through its own changes, but it's still cheaper and funkier and more uh, receptive to artists than, I believe, Seattle. So Seattle's become more corporate, uh, more expensive, and I think it's, it's just a very different city than it used to be. I feel like I know your opinions on arenas right now, but there is talks about how they want to help foster new talent from Seattle at the Climate Pledge Arena. Do you think that this is possible? And what kind of an impact do you think that this new arena will have on the future of live music in the entire Pacific Northwest? Or do you think it's just uh, another hockey yeah. arena? It, it's just an arena. I, I literally have no interest. That that does not, I do not resonate with that at all. Um I'm, I'm all about the, the city really needs to step up and help support some of these smaller clubs, like in Seattle, for example, right now, Mo Nightclub, mm-hmm. as far as contemporary spaces, is, is excellent. Uh, we just had a, a classic space rebar close its doors a few months ago. Well, and it sounds like, uh, uh, this, this, it sounds like Crocodile might also be shutting down as well, which would really suck. There you go. You know your stuff. I appreciate that. Yeah, the crocodile's been around forever. The city did come up with $750,000 a couple months ago to help with local clubs, and I thought that was that was great. But obviously, it's it's not enough because, as I said, Rebar has already closed its doors. The pandemic is really hurting uh, smaller venues, which you know exist exist month to month. And what I'm really afraid of is that the the smaller clubs will just all, all collapse. The whole touring network in America is is being really challenged, and that's where the younger, more uh, innovative bands are, are are going to start playing. And it took decades to kind of create that infrastructure. Um, so, uh, you know. I, I'm not too excited about hockey arena options. I think that's the wrong way to go. Well, what what do you think that the music industry is going to look like post-COVID? 
Well, I think uh, one thing, uh, I think that webcasts and so forth are going to continue to get traction where somebody plays an acoustic guitar in their living room and, you know, maybe 10,000 people are plugged in and they're, they're all, you know, throwing in five bucks or what have you. I think the, the webcasts are, are going to stay with us. Small club network is just getting crushed and crushed, and I, I hope that... Uh, you know, there's some political will there to, to keep some of these places open. Things are, are going more digital. Uh, personally, I've been involved with a, a digital music project called 8STEM, which allows for drag and drop remixing on people's phones. Uh, I, I think the world of music is going to become more global and more digital, and webcasting is probably uh, a, sure, a sure bet for sure. Um, it's 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 kind of sad to think about right now because I know, uh, especially with the venues, the live experience that's being super challenged, and uh, I'm, I'm just really sad about that. Well, speaking of eight stem, can you take us through the story of eight stem? Sure, sure. Uh, the way I, I work is that oftentimes I just I'll meet interesting people, and things will evolve from there. Uh, my relationship with John Poneman was a bit like that back with Sub Pop. And in this, in this case, there was a gentleman named, named Adam Farish, who I'd known for a while. He was a resident of Orcas Island. You know, it's just a population of 5,000 here, so there's, it's, it's a small community. I've, I've, but he I've, showed I've me a there, prototype. Uh, I've been there twice. It's a really nice little community. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Well, Adam approached me about six years ago with a prototype that he had created, and I thought the concept was, was interesting, you know, uh, allowing fans a real simple way to remix or customize music uh, seemed, like, seemed like an interesting project, for sure. Uh, and I'd known Adam for a while, and I've always thought he was a very intelligent, very interesting person, and it would be a fun person to collaborate with. And this is how projects often get off the ground it's just if you meet somebody you enjoy working with then it's a it's a pleasure it's uh, and so that's kind of how the project got started right now we've done we're we've made some 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 significant breakthroughs in the past year and it's and I, I can't go into too much detail, but I, I do think that this technology is going to start getting some traction here by the end of the year. We've got some interesting things lined up, so keep, keep your eyes open. It's, it's my number one priority right now. can't reveal too much, but uh, some cool things are going to unfold here. Well, I'm excited to hear that. But how in tune with current artists are you these days? Do you try to keep up with everything new? You know, I, I, I do peripherally, uh, I am, but certainly nothing like, uh, nothing like I, I was in the 20, when I was in my 20s and 30s. Um, today, for example, I just drove around the island listening to an, a record uh, by a group called The Feelies called Crazy Rhythms, which came out in 1980. And uh, at this point in my life, I probably spend more time reviewing and going back to classics that I really appreciate. Um, the key to, to keeping HTM relevant is working with other people who are, are more tapped into what's going on uh, in contemporary culture, and that is definitely happening. 
Well, why do you think that we aren't seeing the sort of rage we once did in music? Mainstream, it seemed to kind of, it seemed mainstream used to pick up on underground artists going against the system yep. and bring them into the mainstream. But now we're living yep. under one of the most divisive presidents ever. I don't think that yep. I'm, I'm not seeing this. Do you agree with me? Yes, I, I, I do agree with you. And as an aside, I'm just going to toss something out here. Uh, there is a song that came out a couple months ago through Sub Pop, and the group's called Clipping. They're kind of an industrial hip-hop group yep. from, from L.A. Yep. Familiar? So they've got a track called Project 319 that came out on Bandcamp. Uh, there's a, you can also access it through YouTube. And it's, it's definitely making some waves. Check it out. And I think it, it sort of addresses what you're talking about. And frankly, I do agree with your, your point here. Uh, it's pop culture in general. Like, if you look at the pop charts, what's very popular, it's shockingly bland, you know, shockingly non-confrontational considering what's going on. Um, but uh, hopefully that'll change. Why do you think that music right now isn't having the same kind of cachet that it once did, our currency that it once did, I should say? number of different reasons. Uh, one would be, you know, just to compare my... Okay, I'm 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 61, uh, born in '59. When I was a teenager in the '70s, uh, a lot of my time and a lot of my money went towards records. You know, that was very common, very very common. And I I didn't have cable TV. I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have games. I didn't have a phone. So I didn't have a huge chunk of my my life. Uh, taken over by all these all these other uh, avenues of distraction so sadly to say i think music has become the musicians have become less center stage certainly because there's there's so many there's so many other uh options for our our, our attention and that has a lot to do with it i would say fundamentally what brought about your relationship with Bazillion Points books? I had pieced together my uh, micro history of my, my grunge rock micro history, um, experiencing Nirvana grunge in Europe, 1989. I pieced it together along with my friend Dan Burke as an ebook. And I realized I was sitting on a bunch of uh, rare photos of Nirvana's first tour of Europe. So I pieced something together just to kind of get it out there. Bazillion Points then approached me and asked to put out the hard, hard copy. And additionally, they were interested in reissuing my zines and my columns, which came together as a book called Sub Pop USA. Uh, I do appreciate you bringing that up because... Uh, the awesome that people kept buying those books. I, they're fantastic books. If anybody doesn't have them, they should really pick up both. Oh, thank you. One thing I will say about Sub Pop USA is that I, I think I can legitimately say it may potentially be the most in-depth index of indie underground music from the 80s in America because I spent eight years documenting a wide variety of music Giving address, commenting on, giving addresses and commenting on it. So the book really is a, a pretty deep dive into 
into a culture that you can kind of figure out on the internet, but a lot of those recordings have, have never even made it to, to the internet. So just, just my two cents there. Well, I have to ask, how did it feel when you got your footprints bronzed at Sixth and Pine? That was, that was, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I will say, you know, John and I, had we kind of had a little falling out when, when I left, and, and uh, we were distanced a bit. And I think being invited to have our, 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 our shoe prints bronzed there downtown was uh, the best thing about it was really reconnecting with John and uh, John and I have been slowly coming back together and uh, we're talking very regularly now. So I, I'm, I'm up to date on what's going on with the label. So that was, the, that was the best thing about that. It really helped bring us together. You love to put bands together and do these like almost festival like bills for sub pop. What would you say the best just show was that you guys ever put on? Wow. Uh, good question i i have to say the one that was the showcase that was the most exciting was really our first epic showcase which was the infamous lane fest at the moore hotel june 9th 1989 and uh at the moore theater there's about 1400 1500 kids there the Moore Theater had never sold out a local show before, and as as you as you may know, the the general manager sent most of his security home because he didn't think any would be anybody would show up. The night was total mayhem, kids totally going off. Nirvana, Tad, Mud Honey. Um, we knew at that moment that the Seattle scene was going to blow up as of that show. Did you think that Nirvana would escalate to be the top band of the scene? Or did you think that there was another band that was probably going to be there and just maybe didn't make it? No, you know, uh, absolutely not. I I think both John and I probably thought that Soundgarden was far and away going to be the biggest commercial success. They had already drawn the interest of major labels. Uh, Chris Cornell sang in perfect pitch, total rock star. They And they did go on to sell a lot of records and become very celebrated. Uh, when we first started working with Nirvana, they were still working out some kinks. Uh, Kurt's songwriting was, was, I would say, immature at the time. So the the amazing thing about Nirvana is they just kept getting better and better and better, and um, there was just no stopping them after uh, after a couple of years. But in the in the yeah, I would say 80, 88, 89, when we we were uh, getting the label off the ground, Nirvana was 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 not at the top of the list. For example, they were the opening act at that Lampest show, for example. Well, I know that you had Skinny Puppy on that Sub Hop 100. I think it was Sub Hop 100. Were you looking towards Canada to also try to bring those bands into into the zine back in the day? I wasn't really looking at Canada. In that particular case with Skinny Puppy, a good friend of mine had a relationship with the band. Um, they certainly had had an audience, and I did feel that industrial was a, a legitimate scene and skinny puppy were certainly kind of stars within that scene so um 
that's that's kind of how that demo wound up on uh, Sub Pop 100. Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up, other than the what I think is really exciting in the eight stem stuff? Well, I wish I could I could I could give you something, but uh, I, I what I will tell you I will tell you this about eight stem is that uh, I've been talking with Sub Pop quite a bit. And so what I can I can leak to you at this time is that I'm feeling very confident at this time that 8STEM and Sub Pop are going to join forces, and that's been a little under the table. So uh, I, I'm very excited to see what, what happens uh, by the end of the year. Well, I'm very excited to hear that. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on here. It means a lot, and I just want to keep this story alive. I hope everybody checks out and if all, all the old documentaries, the fanzines. I hope everybody picks up the books. Your story is is a hell of a story, and I just thank you for coming on here. Super appreciate it, Robert. Great questions, and uh, you have an awesome day. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Keep up with all Bruce Pavitt over at BrucePavitt.com and check out the 8STEM stuff. Hopefully we're going to get more of that. 8STEM.com. That's the number 8, STEM.com. This concludes our broadcast day. Yeah.